Well, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. Verse 35 is where we'll begin. And if you've been with us, you know that we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark and we're almost finished. But this morning, we're, we're going to hear about one of the greatest promises in the Bible. In this great letter, the letter to the Corinthian church, the Apostle Paul comes to a section where he deals with the importance of the resurrection. And since we're celebrating that this morning, it's an appropriate passage to, to look at. 1 Corinthians 15 is the most detailed section in all of the Bible on our heavenly bodies. There are two parts. The first part is about the victory of Christ, about Christ's resurrection, and how without the resurrection of Jesus, there's no hope in the gospel. There, it's, it's, it's empty, it's vain. The second half, which is what we're going to look at, is about your resurrection, about my resurrection because of Jesus. It's very encouraging because it gives us the glimpse of the best is yet to, to come. And while death in your mind might be far off, you don't expect to die today. It's not far off in, in Stephen's mind or in others. The resurrection is not a far off truth. Don't think that the resurrection is just what you talk about at a funeral. It's not a far-off truth. There is no other New Testament truth more important than the resurrection on how we live. It impacts the way we live. In fact, I'm going to show you that that's exactly how this largest section on the resurrection in the Bible, how it ends. It ends with it matters to your life today, right right now. It's not some far-off truth. The resurrection gives meaning to life because it shows there's something else Something else after this to live for. Think about how empty life would be if this is all there was. Actually, you don't really have to think about that. You could just look around and see all of the hopeless, hapless lives of, of worldlings, people that don't know the Christ, what they're pursuing, what they're, what they're chasing. And while there may be pleasure for a season, the Bible says that, that it ends. The resurrection is also the answer to suffering and death and disease. It's God's answer to the curse. We experience suffering all, all around us, and, and some people want to blame God for it. They ask things like, how can a good God allow these, these horrible, evil things to happen in the world? Or, or, or also they'll ask, well, why doesn't God do something? If God is all-powerful, if He can, if, if He could do something, why doesn't He do something? And the reality is, He did. The resurrection is what God did about sin and suffering and, and death. God would have been absolutely just to leave us in the mess that who created? We created. Man created. But God didn't. He did something about it. He entered into that death, into that suffering, into that sin, as the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then bore the penalty for that, and then went in the grave where death will take everybody, and then came out of the grave. The resurrection is God's answer to all of those, all of those things. His death on the cross, His bodily resurrection that followed is God's response and answer to sin and evil that we brought into the world. The resurrection is, is a near truth, not a far off one. It's the victory over death, which is the result of sin. Death has conquered all of us. We're all dying. We, we just don't know when. Death has 
No power, no sting, no rain over those who will be raised to everlasting life in Jesus Christ. The resurrection is, is one of the greatest promises of the, of the New Testament. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul invites us to press our nose, if it will, against the glass and, and peer into what awaits every believer after death. And beginning in verse 35, Paul teaches us about the future by answering two fundamental questions. He answers, how will we get a new body after death and what will that body be like? Pretty interesting questions. How will we get a new body after death and and what will that body be like? Look at you at verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? How are the dead raised? How would, how do, how do we get a new body after death? Really? Is this not just some, you know, religious crutch? It sounds like science fiction. Come on. That's what they're saying. And then what will that body be like? If that's true, if you are, if there, if there is something after death and you are raised from the dead, what will that body be like? Those are the two questions. How can my body rise and what will it be like? And, and in, the next section, Paul gives four compelling answers that are so clear, they rebuke the scoffers that are asking the question. There are four compelling answers to questions about the resurrection. There's the illustration that he gives from nature in verse 36 through 38. There's the example from creation that he gives in verses 39 through 42, the first part of verse 42. Then there's the contrast that you typically hear at funerals quite often in verse 42, the second half, and verse 44. And then he gives the source of our resurrected body. He actually gives the source of our earthly body, but his whole point in doing that is to show us the source of our resurrected body. Let's look at the first answer that he gives to these two questions. There's the illustration from nature. Look at how Paul answers these questions. How are the dead raised and what kind of body do they come? In verse 36, you foolish one, or literally, you fool. And Paul begins to answer the question like that. He's not being overly harsh. He's not rebuking sincere inquiry. God has no problem with us asking Him questions. In fact, He invites us to ask Him questions. How do I know that? Because He's given us a book, Genesis to Revelation, to answer the questions. God is not afraid of questions. There's not a single question that you can answer that God is terrified of. Or somehow you're going to ask a question that's, that's going to unra- unravel all of the Bible and, and, and redemption. I mean, it's ridiculous, some things that people think. But he doesn't take too kindly at scoffing. In fact, he rebukes it. And here the Apostle Paul does. And that's what they're doing here. They're scoffing. Scoffing questions from those who don't believe. And so Paul rebukes them and then answers. And he, he, you'll see very quickly why the, why the answer is a, is a rebuke. He calls them foolish because they believe in the resurrection without question. And it's illustrated in nature all of the all of the time. Look at what he says in verse 36. That which you sow, you foolish one, that which you sow, does not come to life unless it dies. If you find the, the concept of 
the resurrection from the dead hard to believe. You've been witnessing it for a month now. It's been been the first thing that happened before all the pollen that's that's causing your your noses to run this morning and you haven't questioned you haven't questioned it at all. It happens all the time in nature with the seed. And God who created that process is fully capable of doing the same thing with your body. God has provided an illustration in nature, an illustration in plant life on a very small scale of what He is capable of with us and what He will do when we're put in the ground. And yet, the people that are asking this question, and, and, and we, we don't question what happens with seeds. So, Paul's saying, why question the resurrection? He explains this illustration in three parts. He, he begins with the with the conclusion, he says, the seed dies first. You would look in verse um, 37. That which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but bear grain, perhaps wheat, or perhaps something else. He says, we all know this. This is a conclusion of, of, of plant life. When a seed is planted, it... It goes in the ground, it decomposes, and from that it becomes a plant. The seed dies first. Jesus calls on this this same illustration in John chapter 12, verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, or truly, truly, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But, if it dies, it bears much fruit. What's he saying? He's saying before Christ could bring salvation and new life to us, He had to die. But because He did die, His death bears fruit. That's you and that's me and that's anybody who's trusted in in Christ. The seed must cease to exist in its original form as seed before it can come to life as a plant. And Paul says it's the same way with the resurrection. The seed has to die first and then... What rises is changed. Look at verse 37 again. That which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but bear grain. You put a seed in the ground. It's the body that is to be. It's it's not the body that is to be that goes into the ground. The body that is to be is what comes out of the ground after you sow the seed. And so Paul continues. With the planting illustration, he talks about the change that's going to happen. He reminds them that what comes up is different from what goes in the ground. I mean, when you plant a garden, you you don't expect a seed to come up. You expect a plant to come up, right? You understand that. You don't doubt that. You, in fact, expect that is what Paul is saying. So why are you questioning that about the resurrection? The body that goes in the ground is not the body that's coming out of the ground. The seed that goes in the ground is not the plant that's going to come out of the the ground. When you plant a seed, whether that's wheat or corn, you plant a bare seed in the ground and you expect a plant to come up. When when I was a child, my my grandfather uh, used to plant a huge garden in our backyard. My, My dad was here last week. And he was planting stuff. He likes to come and piddle around the, the house. And we were all commenting, at least Tracy and I were, about how much he reminds me of my grandfather when he gets older, the way he walks, what he does. And it was a, 
it was a blessing. And I can remember my grandfather doing the same thing. He would plant stuff everywhere and and I would help him. If there was a he lived in a subdivision and if there was a bare piece of ground, he wanted it plowed up and he wanted something planted there. There was corn and the corn had beans growing up the stalks and I mean it was everywhere. He didn't have a didn't have enough for it, so he planted it. And when he planted things after he planted it, and you could see the row, you could kind of make out a row, but he would take a stick, and he would put a stick in the, at the end of one row and a stick at the end of the other row, and then he would take the seed packet and he'd put it on top of the stick. You've probably done that, done that yourself. Now, have you ever looked at the picture on a seed packet? The picture on a seed packet doesn't show seeds. The picture is the full-grown plant. I mean, part of it's marketing, Right? I mean, this is what you can get if you buy these seeds and put them, put them in the ground. It's a picture of the full-grown vegetable or, or the fruit, not the seed that was planting, planted. Paul's saying, why is it so hard for you to understand that about the resurrection? I understand that you look around today and you see a bunch of seeds. But here in 1 Corinthians 15, God's giving you a picture of what the full-grown plant's going to be like whenever it comes up out of the ground. At Christ's return, your resurrected body that has to die, has to go in the ground first, will rise and will be changed into a new body. And it will be profoundly different from the body that went into the ground. Hallelujah. I'm very thankful for that, aren't you? And you will continue to exist in that new body. Look, if you would, at verse 38. But God gives it a body just as He wished or He pleases. And to each of the seeds a body of its, of its own. The moment that you die, your spirit leaves this body and goes one of two places. Into God's presence in heaven or out of God's presence into, into hell. And one day the Lord will raise the body that's placed in the ground, out of the ground, and He will change it into a body as He sees fit. And it will be fit for one of those two places. Flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And this body, if you're an unbeliever, would not last a second in, in hell. And so the body that, that comes out of the ground, the seed that goes in the ground, the body, the plant that comes up out of the ground, will be changed and will be made fit for either the presence of God or out of the presence of God. And yet there's still a connection. There's still a connection between you and what comes out of the, the ground. That's what he's saying to each of the seeds a body of its own. The seed has a body of its own. There's still a, there's still a, a connection. So there's a continuance. You don't go in the ground and it's over. He's saying the seed sown changes form. And it's significantly different, but it continues to be the, the same. Now, going back to my grandfather and the seed packet on a stick, he, he did that so he could know what was planted there. There wasn't any, any, anything that came out of the ground. All he could see is just bare ground. And when you plant cucumber seeds, you don't expect to get tomatoes. And God has given each type of seed a body of its own that will come up out of the ground. And so will be the same with our bodies. Jesus, when He was resurrected from the grave, 
He was radically different, but he was also recognizable. He appeared in the room when there was a locked door and nobody needed to open the door, but they recognized him as the Lord. Different. But he was still recognizable. It was still Jesus. But now Jesus in a resurrected body. And when your body is resurrected, it'll still be you. It'll just be in a resurrected body, a resurrected form. As I've said before, you can think of tombstones for believers as seed packets on a stick. It tells us who's buried there. You can see the bare ground. You can see who's buried there. But 1 Corinthians 15 is giving us the picture on that seed packet of what your body is going to be like. What it will be like whenever it comes up out of the ground. And that's not hard to understand. I mean, you understand what happens to seeds. This is not illogical. This is not some type of anti-scientific faith stuff. It's right there, plain as day, before you every day. Even a child can understand it. Even a child sees that it happens. And it happens all over, all over the earth. And if God can create a body that's fit for the earth... Why do you not think that it's hard for him to create a body that's fit for heaven? And so Paul gives the next answer, and it is an example from, from creation. Look at the second answer that he gives here, beginning in verse 49. How will my body rise? What will it be like? Well, here's the second answer. All flesh is not the same flesh. There is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another another of fish. So after rebuking them through the normal process of planting, he now points them to the different bodies that you also see every day and you take for granted in creation. There's one flesh of men, another of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of, of fish. He, he makes an obvious statement. All flesh is not the same flesh. Now, I understand if it's your brother or your sister, you know, you may call them names. You may tell them that they look like an animal or whatever else, but you know that they're not. All flesh is not the same flesh. It's different. There's variety in creation. It's amazing. Scientists discover new New varieties all the time. Bodies are not the same on the earth. Dogs are not even the same in and of their, in and of their own dogness. They, some have long hair, some have short hair. You're not the same. You all look very different this morning. Bodies are not the same on the earth, so don't be surprised that they won't be the same in heaven as the one that you have now. There's a variety. That's what he's saying here. All flesh is not the same flesh. But he also says that there's a purposeful design. Watch what he says. All flesh is not the same flesh. There's a variety. But there's one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, and another flesh of fish. Now think about that. He could have said anything that he wants to, but he talks about the different flesh that's fit for different environments. Men, beasts, birds and fish. There's a purposeful design. God's made them. He's created them with a purpose. There's nothing more intricate than the human body. It's, a, it's amazing. 
should be nothing new to us then that God can design different bodies' purpose for their environment. We look around and see it all of the, all of the time. Each of the bodies created are designed to do exactly what it needs to do. Fish have a design to thrive in water. We have to wear oxygen tanks and goggles and fins and other things to go in the environment of the fish. And yet fish don't need any of that. Why? Because God made them that way. He made them. He designed them. There's a purposeful design fit for its environment. On the flip side, what happens to fish when you catch them and you take them out of their environment, out of their water? They can't breathe, right? They flop around. Birds have a design to operate in the air. We have to get in these ten things with wings that have big engines on them and propellers in order to get into the environment of the, of the birds. And yet, birds just do it effortlessly. In fact, airplanes are designed after the design that God made of the birds. Animals have a design to function in their sphere. It's like Buddy Davis, Ken Ham's old sidekick, who sang, it's designed to do what it does do, and what it does do, it does well, doesn't it? And he says that really fast whenever he sings. You know what's Paul saying? He's saying you, you take for granted the design. You may not understand all of the design. You may not understand how God did it. But it happened. And you don't question that a fish is a bird. So why would you question that this earthly body is, is going to be different from the heavenly body? The heavenly body is going to be different from the earthly body and that God can give a purposeful design. He's designed animals for earth and water and sky. He'll also design our resurrected bodies for heaven. And we'll have a body fit for heaven. Or one that will endure eternal flames without being consumed. There'll be a different environment in the afterlife. There'll be heaven, eternal bliss, joy, no sin, no tempter, no suffering, no death. It'll be wonderful. And then there will be the lake of fire, a real place. And the bodies that are fit for that environment, are different for the, from the bodies that will be fit for heaven. The ones fit for heaven will, will read. It will be imperishable. It will be glorious. It will be powerful. It will be without sin. It won't be natural. It will be spiritual. And the ones that will be fit for, for hell will, will, be, will still have sin, will still be hopeless, will still all be, be all those things, but they'll be durable. They'll be, they'll be durable in the sense that they'll be eternal and they won't be, be able to be consumed by the fire that will be there. But they'll feel it'll be a horrible place. God has made the human body with amazing creativity. It's a display of His handiwork. He stamped His glory there. And God will also have our heavenly bodies stamped with a distinct glory and so that's what Paul says in verse 42. He talks about in verse 40, there are the heavenly bodies, the earthly bodies. That's what terrestrial means, terra, earthly, celestial, that's heavenly. There are heavenly bodies, earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the, the glory of the earthly is another. There's glory to your earthly body, there's going to be glory to your heavenly body. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon. There's the glory of the stars. There's different glory. 
within the stars, big stars, small stars, twinkling stars, God created them all and we marvel at them. And there's amazing creativity in the, in the human body. In verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. I mean, that's, after the illustration, that's the punchline. Just as God gave glory to this earthly form, He'll also give glory to His heavenly form. Don't think that this body is throwaway. It's not. You bear the image of God and God gave you an amazing body. In fact, He purchases it. It's, it, it's the temple of God. He lives inside it. You should take care of it. And all of the other things that the Bible says, but it's cursed by sin, so it's, it can't go into heaven. It needs a new body. You need a new body to go into heaven. The resurrected body will have a distinct glory. And he tells us exactly what that will, what that will be in this contrast. If you would, it, the second part of verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Now watch this pattern. It's sown a perishable body. It's raised an imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. You hear the seed and the plant? It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. There's a pattern. It's sown, it's raised. It's sown, it's raised. Right now, what's coming? What goes in the ground? What comes out of the ground? And Paul gives four differences between our current bodies. There's a contrast between our current bodies and the ones that are resurrected. And this is where you get the majority of the information about the resurrection. It's one of the clearest, it's the clearest teaching on the resurrection in the New Testament. Look what he says first. There's a perishable versus imperishable. Corruption versus incorruption. Some of your translations may say it's the idea. It perishes. It's corrupted. Because it's corrupted, it, it perishes. And the one will be incorruptible. It will be imperishable. It is sown a perishable body. It's raised an imperishable body. Now he's showing you He's reminding you what your current bodies are like, which you probably feel, but He's showing you what your resurrected body will be like. What the, Here's the picture on the, the seed packet. One of the most obvious things about the human body is it's fragile. <laughs> it's perishable. It's amazing. We took the stitches out of Jared's fingers yesterday when... He got a hold of the steak knife, and that just went right back together perfectly. I mean, there's going to be a scar there, but when the cut happened, the blood came and cleansed it, and then the blood clotted, and then the skin went back together. It's amazing what God is able to do. And if He's able to do that here with this body, can you imagine what the heavenly body is going to be like? But it's fragile. It's perishable. This body that you have is... It's corrupted. It's perishable. The second law of thermodynamics says all creation is in a state, is on a state of decline and decay. It's not evolving upward. And when it comes to our bodies, we know that law all too well. We're not getting any better. We're not headed uphill. We're 
We're headed downhill. That's why they celebrate at age 40 over the hill. We're on the downgrade. Actually, we've been on the downgrade from conception. The body grows. You see the natural natural growth. But it wasn't intended to go down into the grave. That's not how God started. Adam and Eve, if they would have obeyed, could have lived forever. Our bodies get sick. They get out of shape. They get weak and they eventually die because of curse, because of sin. There's no stopping it. The body we have lacks durability. It deteriorates with age. We lose mass, muscle mass. Skin loses elasticity. We lose teeth. We lose hair. About the only thing that we don't lose with age is weight, right? We gain that. But we are irreversibly subjected to death. Our body perishes. And it's the clearest consequence of the fall, which no one can deny. Billions of dollars are spent trying to reverse it. And Paul says that's not so in the resurrection. Our bodies won't be that way. They'll be enduring. Sown perishable, raised imperishable. A body that lasts. A body that's not corrupted. A body that does not decline. A body that is permanent. Paul echoes this truth, or Peter, Peter echoes this truth, echoes the same truth of Paul in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance incorruptible, imperishable, undefiled, that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you. That's what's awaiting you if you're a believer. In the, in the new body, there'll be no sickness, no decay, no deterioration, no death. It will be imperishable. What an amazing promise. But there's more. Not only will our bodies be durable, they'll reflect the glory of our Redeemer. Look, if you would, at verse 43. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. Our current bodies reflect the dishonor of sin. And our new bodies reflect the glory of Christ. They will. Our current bodies, when they perish, are sown in dishonor. Now, what do I mean by that? I was here whenever my grandfather died, and he lived in the same place for 90 years. And to my knowledge, he only left a few times. He was a simple man. He was a farmer. He was a, a foreman in a body shop. And he did that his entire life. The only long trip that I know that my grandfather took was when he went to war on Christmas Day in 1944. He fought in France, was wounded there, and when he died... He was buried with military honors as a decorated World War II vet. And the service was extremely moving. If you've ever been to a military funeral, you know what I'm talking about. The casket is, is draped in the American flag with a blue field of the flag placed at the head of the casket over the left shoulder of the deceased. My grandfather's funeral, all, of the, all the pallbearers were his grandsons. And we carried the casket draped with a flag with a military honor guard snapping to attention. They saluted their fallen comrade as he, as his body passed by. 
But no matter how much honor you rightly bring to a man that deserved honor, his body had succumbed to dishonor. His body was in that box that was draped with the honorable flag. They honored my grandfather for his deeds during his life, not his triumph over death. He was dead. His body was there. Death had won victory over his body, the body of the first Adam, and death is an evidence of that. It's sown in dishonor. It's, it, it's not the way that God intended the body that He created to be. It, it, it's, it's overtaken. And Paul says it will not be so in the resurrection. Paul says our vile bodies will be raised in glory. And when my grandfather's body or your body is changed, it will be made into a glorious body and it will perfectly fulfill your Redeemer's will in the heavenly realm. There will be no shame of sin carried into eternity. And throughout all eternity, our immortal, perfected bodies will bring our Redeemer glory. We will, we will praise, serve, and enjoy Him for all eternity. And it will be the evidence of the glory of Christ who conquered death. The failure of Adam is seen in the dead body. The glory of Christ is seen in the resurrected body. And that's what Paul means. Look at the third contrast that he gives. Verse 43 again, it's sown in dishonor, raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. Our current bodies show weakness, but our new bodies will show a conquering power. What he says, beyond perishing and dishonorable, our bodies have show profound weakness. We're weak creatures, aren't we? Our strength fails us regularly. And even when it doesn't, it's impossible to sustain. And that's frustrating. I don't like being weak. I have to re read the passage where Paul says that my strength is perfected. His strength is perfected in my weakness. The weakness of our body not only affects us physically, but spiritually. We fall to temptation because of weakness. Physical pain, longings for food. James 4 describes where that comes from. Paul says that will not be the case in the resurrection. The body that will be raised will be raised in powerful. Never again after you come out of the ground will you say the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. There will be no more flesh. Won't that be great? You'll never experience Romans 7 again. What you want to do, you find that you don't do. And what you don't want to do, you find you end up falling to. You'll never say that again, which is why Paul ends Romans chapter 7 saying, I can't wait to get out of this body. Who will, who will release me from this body? And he says, I think God, Christ Jesus, is the one who will do that. You ever contemplated working and never growing weary or never growing weary of it? Never lacking strength to accomplish a task. No more frailty and temptation or falling to sin. That's what a resurrection body will be like. Let's look at the, the last one. Our current bodies are natural, but our new bodies will be spiritual. Look at verse 44. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual one. And remember, I mean, he's still answering these questions. How's this possible? Just look at creation. Here's the illustration in plant life. Look at the illustration in, in all of creation. It's the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Now he's answering, what kind of body will you have? Well, it's very different from the body that goes in the ground. Our earthly bodies are perfectly suited 
for and limited to the natural realm. They breathe air, they function under the pull of gravity, they reproduce, they eat. That's the only place they can function, though. They're limited. They're natural. Heaven, on the other hand, requires a spiritual body. That's what Paul says in verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. can go into the kingdom of God. The resurrection will provide a body that's needed there. It's a spiritual body. It's a durable body. It's a body able to glorify the Lord. It's a spiritual one. And finally, Paul explains how this can be true. It's because there's a source. There's a source of the natural body, and there's also a source of the resurrected body. Look, if you would, at the end of verse 44. If there is a natural body, is there a natural body? Yeah. You, you can pinch it right now if you want to. It's raised a spiritual body. There's also a spiritual body. So also it is written. Here's the source. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not the first, but the natural, then the spiritual. This is the bridge between point three and four in verse, the end of verse 44. He makes a simple statement. There's a natural body, then there's also a spiritual body. Shouldn't be difficult to understand. Men will not be bodily, bodily, how do I say that? They won't, they, it, huh? In the resurrection, you'll have a body. How about that? Sound like Porky Pig there, didn't it? You're not going to be ghosts or spooks. You'll have a body, just as sure as you have one now. They both have an original. Here's the source of the body. There's the, the source, and he begins with the, the order. The natural body came from Adam. He quotes Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed it into his nostrils, the breath of life, and man became a living being. That's what he's saying in verse 45. The first man, Adam, became a living being, a living soul. He's taking us back to creation again. Our bodies came from Adam. He was our prototype. But as Adam became a living soul, giving us bodies, our bodies, he fell. And then everybody that's come after that had been cursed by sin. So Christ became a life-giving spirit. And he cured sin on the cross. Verse 46, he reminds us the spiritual body we receive from Christ is not first, but the natural body. Every human being from Adam has a natural physical body. Every person who comes out of the grave because of Christ will be changed into a spiritual body. You lay aside the natural body and then you get the spiritual one. So there's the order. He also gives us the origin View it at verse 47. The first man is from earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. It's from the dust. It's flesh and bone, flesh and blood. There's the origin. The last man is from the heavens. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Adam's origin was from earth. The second Adam, the last Adam was from heaven. Genesis 2, 7, God formed Adam from the dust. He was earthy. 
He's tied to earth, but because of our inheritance in Christ, we've become partakers of the heavenly. Right now, Christ is seated in the heavenlies, isn't He? At the right hand of the Father. And one day our natural bodies of Adam will give way to our heavenly bodies from Christ because we bear Christ's image. Here's the image. Look at verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. This is not complicated to understand. You have a body like Adam, you bear his image, you will bear the image of Christ. An imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual body fit for the glories of heaven. And we'll bear the image of our Savior and be glorified in the resurrection. He was the forerunner. His body, the arch, archetype of, for the body of, that we will receive. And the end is better than the beginning. If you would, at verse 50. Now, I say this. After answering those questions so plainly, how is a resurrection going to happen? You see it all the time. What body will it be like? Detailing very plainly. Now he comes to, to teach more. And he says this. Now I say this, brethren. Who's he talking to? Christians. Brothers. Brothers. Brethren. That flesh and blood can't enter the kingdom of God, nor does perishable, corruptible in, inherit the incorruption. And now he's going to tell them something that's amazing. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We'll not all sleep, but we'll all be changed. Paul expected Jesus to come, just like we expect Jesus to come. It's going to happen in a moment. The twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet sound, the dead will be raised, and they'll be raised just like I just told you, and we'll all be changed. Paul says flesh and blood can't enter into heaven where God is, but a glorified body can. And that's what happens. Death will be shown to be defeated. Verse 53, for this perishable must put on the, imp- must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on the immortality. It must happen because... He's talking to believers. It's not a possibility. It will happen. And when, or but when, this perishable will have put on imperishable. When the resurrection happens is what he's saying. And this mortal will have put on immortality. Then will come the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? What will happen when the resurrection takes place? Flesh and blood can't enter. But when the resurrection happens, death will be shown completely defeated. We're right now, we're watching the game. You know, the DVR is there and, and we're watching the game. But Paul says when the resurrection happened, you already know what the score is going to be. Death is swallowed up. Death is mocked. It has no victory. Death is like a scorpion or a bee with no sting, with no stinger. All because of Jesus Christ. And the end will be better than the beginning. Forever with God our Savior. 
The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God in verse 57 who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ because He paid the penalty of sin. And you don't have to worry about judgment after death. Look at verse 58. What's the conclusion of the whole matter? Here's the end. Here's the punchline. Therefore, my beloved brethren, in light of everything that I just said to you, in light of answering these questions so plainly, showing you so, so, so abundantly, therefore, what's the conclusion? In light of all of this, we live right now Steadfast, immovable. Why? Knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Knowing that you will be raised. The resurrection is not some far off truth. Paul says it affects how you live right now. The fact that all this is going to happen to you, the fact that there is a resurrection, and you're going to stand before God one day in a resurrected body, because of that, The life that you live in this body, Paul says, matters. And so as a believer, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that your toil is not in vain. Why can he say your toil is not in vain? Because you're coming out of the ground. And you're going to stand before the Lord. And whatever you've done in this body, this natural body, you'll stand there in a spiritual body. And whatever you've done in this natural body, will bring you reward or rejection. What you do now matters. Are you looking forward to this day? I'm looking forward to this day. I am. I'm looking forward to what waits at home today with the dinner and all of that and all the blessings of life. I lament all the hard parts of life. But I'm looking forward to this day more than anything else. And I'm looking forward to looking my Savior in the face and thanking Him for what He did. I'm looking forward to receiving the rewards that I I get for faithful labor. And I'm looking forward to casting all of those rewards back at His feet and say, I don't deserve any of them because it was by Your grace that You saved me and by Your Spirit that You empowered me to do whatever it is. It's a durable body. And that durable body will be fit for one of two places. Won't you bow your heads?